Well, it is no secret that the religious leaders of Jesus' day did not like him. He threatened them. He exposed their hypocrisy. They were religious on the outside, but on the inside, they were full of depravity, and he exposed that. So they wanted to get rid of him. And uh, one day, the religious leaders sent some officials to arrest Jesus so they could do away with him. Now, what happened was these officials went to arrest Jesus, but he was preaching. And they became mesmerized by his teaching. And then they went back to the religious leaders empty-handed. In fact, here's what it says. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. These officers set out with one view of Jesus, that he was dangerous, that he was a rabble-rouser, that he was stirring up the crowds. They set out with that view, but then they actually met him. They actually encountered him, and their view changed. They were drawn to him. Now, you know, today there are a lot of people who will tell you, I want nothing to do with that Christianity. And if you probe a little deeper, what you find out, usually, is that it's not Christ that they want to have nothing to do with. It's usually Christians who have not represented Christ very well, okay, or church where they may have had a bad experience. But when they are exposed to Jesus, not church, Not Christians, but when they're exposed to Jesus, the person of Jesus, many times their hearts melt. And they're fascinated by Jesus. And they come to believe in him. You know what I want to do this morning? I want to expose you simply to Jesus. I want you to meet Jesus in the scriptures. Now, how does this fit with Easter? Well, Easter is the day we celebrate his resurrection. His resurrection vindicates his death. His death was for our sin, as we talked about with the kids. So his resurrection, yes, he's alive. It proves he's alive. But it also proves that his death was acceptable on God's behalf, on on our behalf before God. And why did he need to die? Because we are separated uh, from God because of our sin. But here's something you may have never thought of. When you trust in Jesus, yes, he forgives you and he saves you from hell. Yes, we believe in hell. We believe all sinners deserve to go to hell. Otherwise, Christianity is useless, right? God is a holy God. We have all sinned. We deserve damnation. But he died to save us from our sin, but not only does he save us from our sin in hell, he saves us to God. In other words, a lot of people all their life, all they hear about is Jesus died to pay for your sin so you can be saved from hell. That's, that's half the story. The other half is he saves you so you can know God. Take a look at 
First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's him dying on the cross for us, that he might save us from hell. Well, that's, that's part of it, but that's not what it says. That he might bring us to God. In fact, Jesus defines eternal life as knowing God and knowing him. He's praying in John 17 to God the Father, and he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what I want to do is have us get to know Jesus this morning. Right? And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just take you through various snippets from the Gospels and expose you to how he acted and what he did. And we're going to see some things about him that you may have never even uh, thought about before. Right? Let me begin by taking us to a wedding. This is early in Jesus' ministry. He hasn't done a miracle yet. He has a few disciples whom he's with. And he goes to this little town called Cana. And uh, there's a wedding. Now, back then, um, weddings were not a short ceremony followed by a reception and then it's over. Weddings were sometimes an, an entire week event. People would come and then the, uh, uh, the groom and his family would provide lots of food and lots of beverage. Right? So Jesus goes to this wedding and... Um, we don't know how many days he was there, but at some point, they run out of wine. Now, uh, that was a huge social faux pas back then. All right? No wine. Now, Jesus' mother is there, Mary, and she takes him aside and says, can't you do something to help these people out? This is embarrassing. They're out of wine. And Jesus at first says no. Then he says, all right. He calls the servants over, and he says, You see this, um, these, these stone jars? They were 30-gallon stone jars. He goes, Go fill them with water. They fill them with water. He says, Now take a cup of the water and give it to the host of the banquet. The host takes a sip, and he goes, Oh, that is some good wine. In fact, it's so good that he calls the groom over and he goes, you know, usually the way this works when I throw a, a wedding reception is you serve the good stuff first. And then after people have had enough, you bring out the cheap stuff. You've done it the opposite way. Right? So Jesus turned water into wine. Now John says this. This... The first of his signs, and notice John doesn't use the word miracle. Uh, Jesus never went around just doing miracles like magic tricks, <laughs> like some pastors I know, right? Um, he didn't just go around impressing people with miracles. Uh, he did them for a reason. That's why it's called the sign. They pointed, the, his, his miracles pointed to something about him. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee. And manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. What does that mean? How did turning water into wine manifest his glory? 
he just did a miracle of creation. He created wine out of water. It reveals his glory as creator. Now, I want you to notice something. In the natural world, the only way to get wine, fermented wine, is for it to take time. Right? It takes time for wine to ferment. Right? Jesus created fermented wine instantaneously. You know, some people object to the Bible's uh, view of creation. They say, if you read the Bible, it makes it seem like the earth and the universe is only a short period of time old. But we know it took billions of years for the universe to get here. So I can't buy creation. Guess what? My God can create brand new things with the appearance of age. He can instantaneously create fermented wine and he can create a universe the same way. Right? Let me take you to a similar event. He's teaching the people. Okay, He, he uh, went out in, into uh, the, the hillside and thousands of people were following him. And they had followed him for a number of days. No food. They were starving. So uh, they try to gather some food and there's a little boy who has his lunch. And uh, in his lunch, five loaves of bread. Now, these are not big wonder bread. It's just little buns, five buns and two fish, two sardines. That's all they have, thousands of people. And here's what, what it says. They, his disciples, said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He said a prayer, like he's thanking God for this meal that they're all about to eat. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Now stop right here. At this point, this is crazy. You know, what if we had advertised that uh, we're going to have our Easter service today, and then following, we're going to have an Easter buffet. And you brought tons of people, and we had to meet in the gym. There were 500 people in there. And it was time to eat, and we said, we forgot the food. But just then, a boy goes walking by. He's got a Subway bag, and uh, we bring it in. It's a six-inch meatball, right? or turkey. What do you want it to be? Whatever. Right? And I said, oh, Great. We do have lunch, people. We have lunch. Uh, and, and I break it. Thank you, Lord, for this meal that we're about to eat. We call the ushers, Pete. And um, the ushers start passing out the six-inch broken meatball sandwich. You would think that was crazy. That's, that's what is going on right here. Verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. How many apostles were there? And this is not only a miracle of feeding, but it's a miracle of efficiency. Not any leftovers, right? But now, look at this. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. 
So you got 5,000 men, add the wives, that's 10,000. They didn't just have one child back then. This could have been 25,000, 30,000 people that he fed. Again, this reveals that Jesus is not just a nice guy with a beard. He's your creator. He is the creator. John says this in his gospel. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing, without him was not anything made that was made. He made you, yet he's a man. He's fully God and fully man. He is your creator. You know, when it comes to answering the ultimate question of how did you get here and why are you here, there's really only two answers. Answer one, there's a creator who created you with a purpose, and that purpose is to know him. Answer two, there's no creator. And evolution, not just biological evolution, but cosmic evolution says this. One day there was nothing, and the next day all matter accidentally popped into existence without a cause. And then that stuff over billions of years formed people. Those are your two options. Um, We came up with the idea of cosmic evolution, not because it's scientifically provable, not because it's even rational. It's very irrational. We came up with cosmic evolution to get rid of God. You see, if... There's a creator, you're accountable to him. So, to get rid of that idea of accountability to your creator, we've come up with this brilliant idea that everything popped into existence uncaused and formed people. Right? Now, um, here's the problem with that view. Not only is it irrational and unprovable, it leaves you without any purpose for being here. You have no more purpose than a a rock at the bottom of that pond out there. There's no right or wrong. If if you just accidentally were a, a result of a cosmic accident, then there is no right or wrong. There is no purpose there's no significance to life. You could try to, to, to manufacture one, but it's just an illusion. You know, philosophers who've actually tried to perpetrate that view, many of them have gone insane. You can't live that way. But the good news is, there is a creator. He created you for a purpose to know you, and he wants to know you. So we've looked at some miracles of creation. Let me take you now to another scene in Jesus' life. We just had Good Friday. On the Thursday evening before Good Friday, Jesus has the Last Supper. Then he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And then Judas shows up with soldiers to arrest him. We go back to John's Gospel, John 18. It says, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort... And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, interesting, this word cohort, a lot of times it appears in 
the scripture next to the word centurion. A centurion was a, uh, a commander in charge of 100 soldiers. Now, we don't know for sure, but there may have been up to 100 armed soldiers there to arrest Jesus. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Have you ever noticed that before? It's one unarmed man versus a hundred armed, trained killers. Yet, when they say, who, who are you? Are you Jesus of Nazareth? I am he. They all fall to the ground. Who's really in charge here? Right? Don't ever think that Jesus went to the cross because he was forced against his will. He went because he wanted to go. Now, let me show you something. This is uh, in the New American Standard translation. When they said, where is Jesus the Nazarene? Are you him? I am he. Notice that the he is in italics. I've kind of graded out. You know what that means? That's not in the original. The translators put that in there so it would make grammatical sense. But really, he said, when they said, uh, who's Jesus the Nazarene? He said to them, I am. And when he said, I am, they fall to the ground. What do you know about the term I am? It's the name of God. Remember when God appears to Moses in the burning bush? And Moses says, who should I say sent me? Tell them, I am sent you. It's spoken as Jehovah or Yahweh. Jesus is not only saying, I am the Nazarene. He is saying, I am God. And the Roman army falls down. He is omnipotent. He is the creator and he has power over everything and everyone. You know, this is just an example of what's going to happen when he returns in Philippians, it says that God raised him to the right hand of God the Father so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, there's some, uh, some universalists coming out of the woods these days. Universalists believe that everybody will be saved and nobody will go to hell. And they point to this verse showing that everybody will bow, and that proves they're saved. No, it doesn't. All this is saying is that everybody will have to acknowledge his power and his glory and that he is Lord. There will be those who do it willingly and as an act of worship. I hope that's you. And then there will be those who are not trusting in Christ, but they will bow the knee also because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. So we see his power over people. Let me uh, now talk about his power over nature. About a year ago today, 
my wife and I had the privilege of going to Israel. And we actually sailed on the Sea of Galilee. And um, it's really a huge lake, but they call it a sea because storms can whip up the waves. And Jesus was in a boat with his uh, apostles, and a storm came, and it was so bad they were fearing for their life. And they start panicking, and they go, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? He was asleep in the back of the boat. Right, which tells you he's God, but he's human too. He got tired. So they wake him up and in a panic they say, he said, we're going we're gonna to drown, Jesus, save us. And he you know, wipes the sleep out of his eyes and he gets up and he goes, be still. Boom. Goes from raging storm to perfectly calm. But what's interesting now is the reaction of the apostles. After it's calm, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. They were filled with fear before. Now they're filled with great fear. Megaphobos is the term. (laughs) Great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Why are they more afraid now than they were before? Well, the only thing more terrifying than having nature raging outside of your boat is having the God of creation in your boat. He revealed who he was. Now, his power over man, he has power over nature. You know, there's a realm that a lot of people never think of. Do you know that there is an angelic realm? They really are angels. They're invisible. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14 say that angels join us in the worship service. Right? So, hello. And then there are fallen angels. They're called demons. They hate God. There's another event where Jesus is in a boat, and they land on the shore, and they get out, and they're in Gentile territory, and there's a a cemetery. Now, we actually visited this place in Israel. And um, there's a demon-possessed man. He's raging toward them. And it says that he was naked. He had chains hanging from him, but the, he, he was so strong he could break the chains. He was all cut up because he would, would cut himself with rocks and he was howling mad. I mean, you couldn't make a horror movie crazier than this, right? So Jesus speaks to him, and demons speak out of him. Jesus says, what's your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And uh, by the way, uh, the term Legion is a term to refer to 6,000 Roman soldiers. So this guy could have been possessed by thousands of demons. So they start begging Jesus. They know who he is, and they say, don't send us to the pit. They know they're going to final damnation one day. And they they say, send us into the pigs. There were 2,000 pigs grazing right there. And he says, go! And the demons leave the man, and they go into the pigs, and 2,000 pigs run down a hill into the sea, and they die. And you say, why did he do that? to make the invisible spiritual world visible so we could see 
that this is a reality, but also to show that he is in authority over the demonic realm. Don't think of Star Wars where there's a dualism, the good side of the force versus the bad side of the force, and forever it's just, no. Jesus is in authority over Satan and his demons. In fact, in Ephesians, it says, He, God, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. He is in authority over all other authorities. Demons, angels, presidents, kings. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, at this point you go, this is very interesting. Thank you for letting us get to know Jesus. He seems kind of scary to me. Right? He's powerful. He's our creator. He's, you know, is he nice? Well, let me... Uh, Let me take a a look at his compassionate side. You know, in John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching at the temple. And the Pharisees drag in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, we're told that they bring her before Jesus to test him, to set him up, to trap him. And here's the trap. They say, uh, you know, Jesus, you're a compassionate guy, loving and all that, but the law, Moses' law, says that when somebody's caught in adultery, you're to stone them. Your call. What do we do with her? Now, usually we get the picture of these bloodthirsty Pharisees who just want to kill a woman. No, they wanted to trap Jesus. You see, if he said, no, don't kill her, they would say, see, he subverts the law of Moses. If he said, go ahead and kill her, that would ruin his reputation as a man of compassion. And they didn't have any authority under Rome to actually carry out the death penalty. So it's a lose-lose for Jesus. So what does he do? It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So they, they bring this woman in, and he just bends down and starts doodling on the ground. And people have speculated, what was he doing? What was he writing? Some think he was writing the sins of the Pharisees on the ground. Or maybe the names of the girlfriends of some of the Pharisees on the ground. We don't know what he was doing. I'll tell you what I think he was doing. He was diverting his eyes from the woman because everybody was looking at her with shame. And out of compassion, he didn't want to add to her shame. He could see she was broken already. I think this is simply an act of compassion. Verse 7, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, back to the ground again. Now it did say in Leviticus that when you stone somebody, you need witnesses, but none of the witnesses could have engaged in that sin. And he's saying, all right, let's go ahead and stone her, but those of you who have not committed sin, you go ahead and do it first. So what happens? 
verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now notice, he doesn't just say, Hey, I don't condemn you. Go back to your life of sin. No, he calls her to repent. All right? Don't sin anymore. Yet he shows her compassion nor do I condemn you. To this act of compassion, we could add many examples. We could could add the time when parents were bringing little babies to Jesus and the disciples said, no, he doesn't have time for kids. And he goes, bring them to me. Blesses the little. I bet he played with them too. You know why? He created them. Then there's a time he looks out over Jerusalem and he knows that he's going to be crucified and he knows that they are not going to believe in him and he knows that in 70 A.D. a million Jews would be demolished and he weeps over Jerusalem. Now, lest you get the wrong idea, we've talked about his power, we've talked about his compassion, let's talk about his wrath. In John 2, it says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. They had turned the sacrificial system into a money-making operation. And Jesus is infuriated with that. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. You know, a number of people think, well, he made a whip just to scare them. I think he probably drew some blood. Would it be wrong for God to exercise his wrath upon people who desecrate the temple? And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, um, some people don't know what to do with this. They go, you know, maybe he had a bad day. Right? Maybe it was just out of his character. No. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? When Jesus comes back and pours out his wrath upon the world? In fact, this is just a foretaste of what's going to happen when he returns. In Matthew 25, it says this, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So um, many people believe that this is not just people who are alive, but everybody will be resurrected. And judged, and there's there's only two categories: sheep, goats, saved, unsaved. And what does he do with the goats? And these, the goats, the unsaved, will go away into eternal punishment. Notice it doesn't say eternal separation. Eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Oh, one of his attributes is an attribute of wrath. 
Now, we've kind of given you a kaleidoscope of exposure to Jesus. And my, my hope is that you would cut through maybe misconceptions about Christianity or church or Christians and just look at Jesus. And um, I imagine some of you are saying, wait a minute. I like the compassionate Jesus. The wrathful Jesus scares me. Which category am I in? I don't want to be part of receiving his wrath. Well, let let me share this with you. It is very clear who will receive his wrath and who will not receive his wrath. If you are not trusting in Christ, then it's just you and your sin on Judgment Day. If you are trusting in Christ, His death on the cross covers your sin. And you are not under His wrath. You are under His grace. And eternal life awaits you. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you are not in Christ right now, you are under the wrath of God, and one day it will fall. If you are in Christ, there is no wrath. He received that wrath on the cross. And you are covered. Why did he need to die? Let me close with this. You know, with this foot thing, I have to go to therapy a couple times a week. And my therapist is a Christian. Where's Dave? Vince says hi, by the way. Okay. And... um, he, we talk Bible sometimes, and I think he's doing this on purpose because there's a room full of other therapy patients, and this is a way to sneakily witness to everybody in the room as we're talking about the Bible. Okay? The other day, um, he goes, you know, my seven-year-old asked me why did Jesus need to die on the cross? And he was just sharing that with me. And I said, have you ever shared with her the traffic ticket story? No, why don't you tell me that, Brian? You know, as he's cranking on my ankle, right? And there was another lady. She, like, had a broken neck, and she's not going anywhere. You know me. I'll preach where two or more are gathered. (laughs) So here's the the traffic ticket story. There was a woman who was speeding in her car. Cop pulled her over, said, you were going way over the limit. That's 200 bucks. She says, I don't have 200 bucks. He says, well, you could try to fight it in court. So she goes to court. The judge hears her case, and he brings down the gavel. He says, guilty, that's 200 bucks. Pay, pay the bailiff. And she starts to cry, I don't have $200. And the judge gets up from behind his judge's chamber, takes off his robe, goes down to the bailiff, takes out his wallet, and pays the $200 because he was her father. Right? Now, if he sat there, and listened to the case, and he thought to himself, she, she is guilty, but because I'm her dad, I'll pronounce her innocent. That would be a travesty of justice. God is a just judge. 
he must sentence sinners to the death penalty. But there is a way out. He can pay the fine himself, which is what he did. Why did Jesus need to go to the cross? Because the justice of God requires payment. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because he's loving and compassionate. And he paid the fine himself. And the offer is this. All who will turn to him and believe, trust in him, instead of your own self-righteousness, instead of your own goodness, you turn from your sin to him and embrace him in your heart, the good news is you're forgiven and the wrath is gone and you will spend the rest of your life and eternity knowing him more and more. If that's what you want, I ask you to pray with me. And the worship team can come on up.